This morning, y'all, we are going to wrap up our series on um, the ancient chaos, which we've been in for the past six weeks, and we're bringing that to a close this morning. And I really want to, um, I want to talk through this morning the, um, put a nice, hopefully tidy bow on the series, uh, where we've begun in the Old Testament and in the Garden and walked through this topic of sin narratively. So we started in the Garden and then we moved to uh, Torah and uh, the law, and then we moved to the sacrificial system, and then we talked through this kingdom language last week that Jesus uh, uses and that the greater New Testament uses. And then this morning, I want to talk through um, specifically this, uh, this theme of obedience and this theme of fidelity to King Jesus and this theme of walking and keeping in step with the Lord's commands and how actually it plays a pretty central role in our life of faith. And so we're going to wrap up this morning doing that. And then next week, Matthew Tistammer once again, will be in the house. We've been uh, announcing that the last couple weeks. Bethany Cantrell is excited. I heard a one hand clap, uh, but you guys will be excited as well. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal pastor here on staff and a good friend of mine. Um, and so it's going to be a rich couple weeks ahead. So as we begin this morning, I want to title this morning's message, uh, The Way of Obedience. The Way of Obedience. Um, well, let's quiet ourselves, as we always do, as we enter into this space. And I just want to encourage you, um, regardless of what this week has looked like, you know, I, I'm well aware that these weekends, uh, we're carrying in a copious amount of things. We're carrying in stress, we're carrying anxiety from school, um, we're carrying relational uh, friction, and uh, can I be honest and say that this week has been one of those weeks for me? just a bit disoriented, a bit jarred. And so if you're in that space, I'm in that space, and that's okay. Because the great C.S. Lewis says that we ought to bring to the Lord what we have and not that which we should have, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. But we can come to the Lord as we are and what's in our hands. And so let's do that. And let's quiet ourselves. And let's let every thought and every emotion and every fear Come under the Lordship of Jesus anew this morning. And Lord of life, we say here we are. We call to mind that you are the good shepherd. We call to mind that you are the one characterized in scripture who makes us lay down in green pastures and who leads us beside still waters, who restores our very soul, and who leads us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are not distant, you are not far, you are not separated from our lowly estate, but you are with us. And so, Good Shepherd, would you be near to us this morning? There is something to be said for your people coming to you authentically and coming to you with a commitment to your word and a commitment to obey and a commitment to order their lives around what you have to say. And we do that this morning. And so we pray that as we enter into discussion and as we nuance your scriptures and as we commit ourselves to being faithful to do everything that you would teach us in your scriptures, would you just shower the life of the kingdom on us? 
And would you shower grace? And would you shower provision? And would you shower um, the goodness of your reign and your glory on us? And we commit ourselves to it. And we pray that uh, you would have your way in this place. And may the words of our mouths corporately and the meditations of our hearts corporately be acceptable in your sight. And we give this morning to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, come on, everybody said, I know there's less of us this morning, but like, let's wake up and let's get loose. And we're going to do so with a discussion question this morning. We got it up on both screens. Uh, and I just want you to process at your table and kick this around a little bit. In your understanding, what role does obedience play in our life of faith? Uh, so once again, if you're sitting alone or if there's not a ton of people at your table, don't be bashful. Go move to a full table so we can have some robust and rich dialogue. And then uh, we'll wake up a little bit and jump into this thing. Let's talk obedience. Ready? Go. Okay. Hope the crusties are out of your eyes and the cobwebs are out of your soul and minds and we can jump into this thing. Those were very vivid imageries. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Wow. <laughs> Some of you are like grimacing. Oh, why? Come on, man. Um, well, can we call a spade a spade this morning and address the elephant in the room that obedience is not necessarily a popular topic in our day and age? Absolutely. But even sometimes in our articulation of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel, obedience very often can be associated with law or legalism. Uh, obedience is something that not many people jump on as like uh, a spiritual discipline necessarily. It can often go overlooked uh, and even skewed in our understanding of gospel and grace, which was a topic that came up at uh, our table during this discussion. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to suggest, just kind of toss a working thesis out to us this morning, that obedience uh, is not a mere supplement to our faith, but actually the substantiation of our faith. That obedience is not something that is an add-on, an auxiliary thing. Oh, nice, yeah, I, I, I say yes to Jesus and I have faith, and then um, when I get around to it, I'll, uh, I'll obey. And uh, I can bring my life under the lordship of Jesus at a later date. Something that can be added on but isn't central. But actually, uh, when we look at the, the New Testament and the greater narrative of Scripture at large, we see that obedience is a central component to faith. That it's not supplemental, but it is the substantiation, the justification even, of our faith. It is the flesh and bones and material substance of our faith and allegiance to King Jesus. Now, again, right now, um, people can jump on that and say, well, that's legalism, bro. That's legalism. You better be careful. We don't want to be under the law. We want to make sure that we're not perverting the grace of God. Legalism. But can I just ask a question? Why are people, some people, so quick to call obedience legalism? As if, like, the way that we live doesn't matter to God. Um, because I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Actually, I see that uh, the, the resounding text of Scripture saying that actually the way that we live matters. And people who are quick to call obedience or works legalism, I think betray a flawed understanding of what grace and faith is in the first place. Um, because we can even jump to 1 John. First, I mean, John has some very explicit um, mandates and commands about how we ought to live. He's, he's shameless in the way that he centralizes obedience and fidelity in the way we live um, in the 
place of faith. He says it in 1 John 2, 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And here's where the rubber meets the road. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. This is the qualifying element and component that we can say and have faith that even our faith is faith in Jesus Christ in the first place. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Dang it, John. Why'd you have to go and say that? Like I was kind of comfortable with my own thing and my own life and my own cute definition of what faith in Jesus is. But he says, no, obedience is actually the substantiation of faith. That if you're going to claim, oh, I know God. Yeah, God and I are tight. Uh, I know Jesus. Okay, well, put your money where your mouth is because we ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. This law of love, this law of obedience, this law of purity and righteousness. If we are to truly validate ourselves as the people of God, obedience is central. Um, and so we see this, uh, this component of faith and this uh, centrality of obedience as we look at the text. Um, but it's interesting because this idea was not exclusive to James alone, but actually our very Lord himself talked about how important obedience was. In fact, uh, Jesus, when he was crucified and uh, buried, and then when he resurrected, he appeared to himself uh, to his believers for 40 days. And he's kind of popping and he's, there's, there's like odd narratives of him just like appearing in rooms and walking through walls. And yet he's eating fish like Jesus. Okay, we're not really understanding metaphysically what your body entails right now. But okay, we can get to that later. But he's just showing up with his people. And he's continuing to teach and he's continuing to reveal himself. And then right before he ascends into glory and right before he sicks his people, the church on the world as ambassadors and carriers of the gospel, he gives them these commandments that we call the great commission. Matthew 28, he tells them these things and he assures them of several truths and then he releases them to be salt and light and ambassadors on his behalf. Matthew 28, we even see this element of obedience and starting in verse 16, then to the 11 disciples, then the 11 disciples, excuse me, went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus tells them four things that they are to give attention to, four marks of conversion, four marks of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he says, go, 
Go tell the world, go tell the nations, don't be ashamed, but get out of here. You're going to get out of Jerusalem soon enough. You will tell the nations about me, go. And then he says, make disciples, Uh, teach them, Uh, explain to them the way of the kingdom, make disciples, Uh, uh, essentially breed for yourselves people through the process of the Holy Spirit who are committed to me. Breed for yourselves people who walk with me and keep in step with me and who are committed to my ways. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the third thing. But then he says this fourth thing, teaching them to what? Come on, teaching them to what? Obey. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. Obedience. Are you seeing this obedience theme? That even our Lord in commissioning his disciples is implicitly explaining that obedience is central to faith. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And in doing so, in doing these four things, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so obedience is central to our life of faith. And so if, if we understand obedience in this light, disobedience, um, how can that be explained? How are we to understand that? What does the New Testament have to say uh, specifically and explicitly about disobedience? Well, I think in its simplest and tamest form, uh, we can summarize disobedience as a misalignment of the confession of our faith and the life that we live. Again, this is the tamest definition I think we can give it, that it's a misalignment, that, that the way we're living is not lining up with the confession of our faith. And that's what John was uh, explaining, the, the text we just read, that, um, you know, you got to actually do something. There has to be substance. There has to be a substantiation of some sort of fidelity and allegiance and obedience to Jesus. And so disobedience, when we're claiming that we know God, as 1 John says, um, and there's disobedience and open rebellion and sin, well, there's a misalignment there. There's a dissonance there. It's like when, you know, your buddy is showing off this new lick that he learned on his guitar and he hits that butt note and it's just, ooh, that wasn't right. Yeah, that didn't go with the song. That's disobedience. This like, ooh, okay, that doesn't belong there. Uh, there's something off here, a misalignment with the words of our confession and the way that we live. Uh, Jude 3 to 4 talks about this. Jude, I mean, this is dicey language here, but he says, Dear friends, Uh, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Contend, contend, contend. Don't write it off, don't mail it in, but fight for it. Press into it. And check this out. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. He's saying that these people have crept in among you who are claiming to be Christ followers. There are these people who are saying, just as 1 John says, that they know God, and in fact, they're even teaching you. But these are the people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. They're saying that we're saved under grace so we can live however we want. Does that sound familiar? This hyper-grace message that uh, is um, prevalent in our Christian culture even today. This uh, lawlessness, this Wild West uh, ideology that, well, yeah, Jesus came and now morality, eh, 
You do you, I'll do me. Postmodernism, right? Your truth is your truth, my truth is so. As long as I have faith in Jesus, I think I'm good. But these were the people who snuck into the church and it started perverting the grace of God. And there was a misalignment. Wait a minute. You're saying you know God, and yet uh, you're living and actually using this doctrine of the Holy Son of God into uh, justification for the way you want to live? Yikes. Jude says their punishment and their condemnation was written long ago and actually foretold by the prophets. And on that comfortable note, we're going to kick it to the tables. And let's talk about this. Let's nuance this a little bit with our second discussion question. We'll put it up on the screen. Why do you think it's important to understand the role that obedience plays in our life of faith? Why is this important? Talk about it. Shake it off. I know we're talking about some heavy stuff, but uh, this too will pass. And uh, let's uh, plumb the depths here with this question. Ready, go, enjoy. All right. Um, well, let's spend um, let's spend the rest of our time really nuancing this a little bit because sin is and disobedience, yes, is misalignment. But again, that's a tame definition. And the New Testament says that it's actually more, and that we, when we engage in disobedience, that, that there is more on the line than just a conflict between what we say we believe and the way that we actually live. Um, but we see that a different thing is at play, that disobedience has this effect on us when we engage in it. And it's really simple. Disobedience hardens our heart. Rich and profound, I know. Like, wow, that is just so deep. But we see this in the New Testament, like the over and over and over again, this teaching that sin and disobedience hardens our heart. And this is actually the issue at hand uh, when the New Testament authors are warning the church, because there's a copious amount of warning passages in the New Testament. If you are to say that the way we live matter, okay, well, you're going to have to get aggressive and justify why there's these presence of all these warning passages, five in the book of Hebrews alone. Um, but over and over and over again, these New Testament writers are, are calling the church, be careful how you live, walk wisely, walk obediently. Um, one of which uh, happens in 1 Corinthians 10, which we're going to read 11 verses here. We're going to spend the rest of our time reading a good amount of text to really see this in action. But Paul in 1 Corinthians goes to great lengths to talk about obedience uh, and, and even talks about it within the paradigm of the uh, Old Testament people, Israel walking through the wilderness. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud. And in, uh, I read that the exact same way. I'm sorry, guys. And all ate for the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was what? Christ. You're telling me that the rock was Christ? Um, anyway, we'll, we'll keep moving with that. That's, that's some robust theology right there, though. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. They're examples. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He's just going after it right now. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for what? Our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation. And this is the resounding redemptive note of this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. God is not dealing categorically different with his people in that he is not saying the way you live now does not, does not matter. But Paul, using metaphysical language, the rock was Christ, like Christ was in the midst of Israel. The, the, like Christ somehow in a way that we may not really be able to grapple with was in the presence of Israel and dealing with Israel. And God, Yahweh, calling them to obedience, that same call is the call to us today. And the, the, the way that things went down with unbelieving Israel serves as an, as an example for us. And furthermore, was written down for us on whom the end of the ages has come. It was, it was transcribed. It was put pen to paper. The scriptures were handed down to us so that we may not fall into the same sin of disobedience and hard-heartedness and rebellion. This is what Paul is getting after. We're going to roll through some more text here. But the, the author of Hebrews, in talking about the hardening effects of sin, um, you know, goes to great lengths as well to warn the people. Uh, he says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But uh, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We see clearly this progression, this sin and this hardening. Uh, and how actually encouragement and engaging in edification with one another as the body of Christ short circuits that hardening process and actually warms and softens our heart once again. Uh, skip over to verse 16. He continues and says this, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? He again is hearkening back to the wilderness days and using that as a paradigm. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief, right? So, the, so in the mind of this author, he's saying that unbelief is more the issue at hand than sin, that sin hardens our heart and sin calluses us. And yes, sin is misalignment, but sin actually, when we engage in open sin and disobedience, in, in the, the mind of the author of Hebrews, he's saying that it sets us on a trajectory of hard-heartedness, which eventually leads to unbelief, apostasy, a turning away, which is what the people of God, Israel, and the wilderness were guilty of. And so it's this, this warning, this warning, this warning. Paul and then the author of Hebrews and John throughout the New Testament, be careful, be careful. Don't harden your heart. You're on a, a trajectory here when you sin of the hardness of heart. And finally, I want to wrap up with um, yet another 
uh, text in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, the, the author continues his line of thinking, talking about how Jesus was greater than Moses, Jesus was greater than the law, the greater than ministry of Jesus. And then he gets to Hebrews 10 and makes it really, really practical. Uh, talking about how Jesus was the high priest and the advocate, he goes on to use this very, very sobering language when he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is heavy, guys, and I know, but keep tracking. It'll get better. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled uh, underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? Yikes! For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yikes. These warnings, these warnings, hardening the heart, talking about sin that hardens and the sin that eventually leads to apostasy and a turning away. And indeed, we see that engaging in perpetual and unrepentant sin leaves us vulnerable to the danger of apostasy that springs from a hard heart. And I think if we were to summarize every single warning passage in the New Testament, every moment where the author says to stop and be careful how we live, we can summarize it in these terms. This was the motive. This was the idea and the theological principle they had in mind, that engaging in sin, yes, in and of itself is misalignment. And as we've seen throughout this series is uh, saying yes to this reign of chaos and yes is rebellion and mutiny to the lordship of King Jesus. But engaging in it, furthermore, sets us on its trajectory and leaves us vulnerable and exposed to the danger of a hardness of heart that then leads to us turning away and turning our backs towards God and saying this radical and rebellious no to the lordship of Jesus. How many of us have experienced that in our friendships with our friends who have walked away from the Lord? I know I have that very, very seldom, if ever, I don't think of, of the, the uh, several friends who have turned away from the faith, not one of them, and this is no exaggeration, not one of them has done it in this like clean, nice, joyful spirit. Well, well, yeah, man, I mean, that's just not my thing anymore. I'm, I'm just an atheist now with a huge smile on their face. Instead, there's this toxicity that I've seen, this, um, this nasty, hard-hearted, uh, turning away from the Lord. And I may be speaking generally here, but in my experience, the friendships that I've had, this has been the common denominator. That it is not, uh, no thanks God, I'm gonna kind of do my own thing over here. But it is a radical no. I'm out of here, God. I want no part of this and this, this apostasy, this turning away that springs from a hard heart. Okay, so if that is the warning, what is the invitation? We see this great invitation throughout the New Testament that you are believers now, you are redeemed. This tension, this paradigm that we haven't addressed this morning, but that very much exists, that you are redeemed. Your identity is a son. Your identity is a daughter. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you, guiding you into all truth, rotting your salvation and your redemption and your uh, sanctification. And yet it's not yet. 
yet it will only be fully realized in the life of the world to come. So this saved yet uh, still being saved, this conversion yet being justified and being sanctified, this tension. But we see beyond all that this great invitation to keep our hearts soft and pliable before the Lord. That the gospel is not one of, uh, of behavioral management or sin management, where it's you accept Christ, great, yeah, you know, just watch every little thing you do because, yikes, there is a component of that, but it's more on a deeper level. It is this watch over your heart. Proverbs 4.23, the great uh, verse that we all know, guard your heart for from it everything flows. And in Hebrews 3.14 and 15, uh, they hearken to the, to the tenderness of our heart when he says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end, as it is said. And here's the great invitation that we see in Hebrews and throughout Scripture. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, hearkening back to the wilderness days. This invitation, keep watch over the state of your heart. Guard your heart. Make sure that when you're engaging in life and you're engaging in interfacing relationships and you're, uh, you're walking through this life of faith and all that it entails, keep watch, people of God, the New Testament authors would say, over the soil of your heart because this hardness of heart endangers us from turning away from the living God. And though that's radical and though that may be 10 steps down the road, there's still this warning and this invitation. Be careful, yet keep your heart soft and pliable and malleable before the Lord. So we see that yes, sin is important to keep in mind and it's crucial. We've seen this throughout this series, but even more than sin, it is the state of the heart, this deeper, why are you engaging in that sin? Why do you continue to persist in this habit this addiction, whatever it is. Like, what is that soil of the heart? What, what's the dysfunction there in you? And it's this invitation, keep your heart soft. Keep the soil malleable and pliable before the Lord. Whew. Let's wrap this thing up with a third discussion question. And I know this morning it, it's a little heavy, and I know this series at large hasn't maybe been super fun, but, um, but it's necessary, and it's Scripture, we're preaching scripture, we're teaching scripture, we're talking scripture. So third question to wrap up this series, how have you experienced the hardening effects of sin, either in your life or in the life of someone you know? People of God, uh, unpack this for the next five to eight minutes, and then we'll conclude and pray this thing out together. Ready? Go. Enjoy discussion. All right, young adults, let's stand and uh, let's pray us out. Hope I'm not intruding or impeding on any conversations. And if I am, I apologize. And you can continue them after we pray. But uh, let's stand. And Father, I pray that we would be the people who, as Hebrews 3 says, uh, would encourage one another daily. Would you uh, put us on the offensive to just in engage with one another and encourage each other and build each other up? Hey, man, I see that. Way to go. Hey, girl, you're doing great. Lord, let us be those people, the people who build each other up and short-circuit the hardening effects of sin. And I pray that in our personal lives, we would keep in step with you. We would commit ourselves to walking obediently. And uh, every day of our lives would be characterized by the radical yes of the kingdom. Yes, 
you have my allegiance. Yes, you have my obedience. Yes, you have all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yes, I love my neighbor as myself. God, let that be said of us. And I pray that today you would send us out and you would hem us in behind and before. You would keep us safe. And as we go from here, once again, we would be a sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ into the city. Order conversations with our friends. Lord, guide the words of our lips and let your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives and on this earth this week as it is in heaven. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.